Tiger Goodman, folks. All right. <clears throat> well, this morning, we're continuing to look at God's way of recovering His intention in the creation, as expressed in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And you remember, His intention was this. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You remember Genesis 1, 26. I think by the time you get out of this class, you're going to know certain verses. <laughs> and when you say Genesis 1, 26 to someone, they're not going to know what you're talking about. And so God's intention is that. And God determines that Adam and Eve... <clears throat> And when we say man, we mean mankind, obviously, not just a male. That man should fulfill this through accomplishing three mandates. Remember the three mandates in Genesis 1.28, the two of them in that. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? With the presence and the rule and the blessing of God. So that as God's people, His image, begin to go out into all the world and begin to multiply and permeate into all the world, they're pushing, if you would, or taking the blessing that was given to man and was to be man's in the garden. They're taking that and expanding, if you would, the Garden of Eden until it encompassed the entire world. So that's God's purpose. The second mandate is also in Genesis 1.28, and have dominion. In other words, in the spreading of the presence of the Lord through man's obedience, through man is God's image. The rule and reign and sovereignty, the kingship of God is being spread and demonstrated and is affecting everything in the world. So man is to have dominion. Man is to be God's agent upon the earth who rules in the name of God, for God, as God, if you would. And then the third mandate, you remember, is in Genesis 2.15. You're right, Ronnie, you got it. 2.15. And that mandate has to do with the garden itself, that man should do what? Work and keep. And you remember we talked in uh, the, the, one of the first lessons we said that terminology is the same terminology that is given to the Levites or the priestly family in relation to working and keeping or guarding or protecting and maintaining the tabernacle or the temple or the place of God's residence. And so sin comes in, Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And the fall occurs. And so God begins to move forward, never being deterred, never being thrown off, never being caught off guard, never being surprised. God begins to move forward this intention until he brings it to a fruition way down the world's history. And so what we're looking at is as we trace out this intention, this development, this move of God, we're looking at the various ways he does it. We're not looking at every way, but we're just looking at the salient issues. And remember, the first salient issue that we began to look at would be the altar. 
We realize that in order for man now, because of sin and fallenness, to be God's representative, to be his living image, man has to be forgiven of sin. Man's sin has to be dealt with. And so remember, the, the pattern of that is established in Genesis 1.21 when the Lord does what? He covers the man and the woman with the skin of an animal. An animal has to die. The blood is being shed in order to cover their nakedness, their shame, their rebellion, their sin. And so the altar becomes the first type or the first picture of the way God will bring man back to his purpose. And so the altar continues throughout the entire Bible to be the central means of God recovering his purpose in man so that once that purpose is recovered and we see pictures and glimpses and an expansion of this understanding as we move through the Old Testament, that purpose is finally culminating in Revelation 21 and 22. Why? Because the altar has been at the centerpiece and God has finally brought forth a man of his image who would be the sacrifice for the sin of the world. So we're moving in that direction as we looked at the altar and as we began to look at the tabernacle last week. We continue this morning because the tabernacle takes the understanding of the altar and expands it. It enlarges it so it's not just a heap of stones, an animal that is killed, you know, and then God is worshipped. Certainly that's significant. But in the altar, God has not given us yet an enlarged picture. The picture is just sacrifice. When we get to the temple, we begin to see the picture and the understanding and the explanation of God's way of redeeming His people. We begin to see that expanded upon in the tabernacle, which we started last week. So this morning, we're going to look at the tabernacle, uh, two things in the tabernacle. First, as God's, pl uh, pl uh, let me start it, the place of God's presence and rule, that's the first thing we talked about a little bit last week. I'll go through that very quickly this morning. And secondly, the second issue in the tabernacle is this, the place of sacrifice. In order for God to be present and ruling among his people, he must do so within the context of sacrifice. God will never be present, dwelling among, fellowshipping, ruling and reigning in and among his people apart from sacrifice. It will never happen. And so you begin to see in this picture, what do we begin to see picture, uh, glimpses of? You begin to hear echoes of and see pictures of the gospel, correct? You begin to see that because folks sometimes think the gospel begins in Matthew. No, the gospel begins with the first words of God to Adam when, God, when Adam fell. What did he say in verse 9 of chapter 3? Adam, where are you? That was God's beginning to search out and draw Adam back to himself. Those are the first words of the gospel. And then the promise of the gospel, you remember, is in 315 where the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will vie for, you know, ascendancy and so on, but finally the seed of the woman will crush the head of the, uh, of the serpent. So let's talk very quickly about the place of God's presence and rule. We did a little bit of this last week, so I'll go through it pretty quickly this morning. As we've already seen We've already started to look at this. The tabernacle is the place of God's dwelling on the earth until the new heaven and the new earth become his sanctuary. Remember, go out and what? Genesis 1, 28. What? Multiply 
and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's intention in creation is that the earth would be his dwelling place with man. That God and man would dwell together on the earth and that the sanctuary of God, which is in the heavens, would become synonymous or one with the earth so that the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary would become one, which we see culminating in the end of Revelation. That's God's purpose. And so the tabernacle begins to be a picture of this. I'm going to dwell among or in the midst of my people in this tabernacle. You don't see that really in the altar. There are glimpses and intimations of that, but you see it then really developed and really spelled out and specified by the Holy Spirit and by God when we get to Exodus. <clears throat> Excuse me. So remember what the word tabernacle means. It means a place of residence, a habitation, and is also referred to as a tent of meeting. These, well, actually three different ways it's referred to. It's called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, or just the tent. Those are the three basic ways that the tabernacle is referenced in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and not so much in Deuteronomy. It means God's place of dwelling. Remember in John 1, 14, after talking about the Word, you know, the Word is with God and the Word was God in the prologue of John chapter 1, and then in verse 14, what does he say? And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So you see the tabernacle in the Old Testament is a picture not only of a place but of a person because you see we will dwell with God and he will dwell with us through one man so that in this one man God and man will forever be together, united. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel. God dwelling with us. And so you have God and man coming together in this one man, and this one man is called God's tabernacle. He is the fulfillment of what the tabernacle points to and references. The tabernacle in Exodus, the word is used 55 times, Numbers 32 times, Leviticus 3 times. So you see, it's a big deal. The tent of meeting, again, a synonymous term. Exodus 32 times, Numbers 54 times, and Leviticus 41 times. So what is the Lord saying? He's saying, my great purpose in creation, my great purpose in creation is to dwell with my people and they dwell with me. That we together dwell in unity and in harmony and in relationship and in fellowship and in intimacy. This is the will of God. This is why all creation has occurred. This is why we are here today. This is the purpose of mankind, to be God's living, dwelling building or tabernacle or tent or sanctuary upon the earth. Also, the Lord's presence, and we did not discuss this, I don't think, last week, in the tabernacle is often manifested in the appearance of the cloud. Remember the cloud of glory. The cloud by day, remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so when the Lord was manifested among his people in the tabernacle, there would be a cloud that some kind of way that would descend upon and literally come out of the tabernacle. So the people literally physically saw the presence of God among them in this cloud, in this cloud. 
And so the cloud is used, 30, the word cloud is used 37 times in Exodus and in Numbers to indicate God visibly, literally present with his people. A cloud. How many of you know what Hebrews 12.1 says? We are surrounded by such a what? Cloud of witnesses. How many remember in chapter 24 of Luke, Jesus was taken up into the cloud. He will in the likewise come down, what? Descend in the cloud. You see, the word cloud is not only used in this reference, but basically the word cloud is used in the Old Testament as a reference for the presence and the glory, the manifestation of God himself. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's praying, and he tells his, he's praying for rain. Remember, and he tells his what? His servant, go look and see if you see anything happening. And then the, the servant finally comes back after what? The third time, I think it was? How many? Well, it may have been seven. I can't. And he says, I see a cloud like a man's fist. Well, what does it mean? It's a physical cloud that has rain in it, but it's also the manifestation of the coming of the presence of God to work great miracles and blessings for the people. So it's not just a cloudy day. It's something about God's presence, and that cloud descended upon the tabernacle. And so in John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His cloud, His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth and grace. See, the cloud of God. Remember, <clears throat> on the day that Jesus was baptized, what? The cloud. And from the cloud, God spoke. So let's think a little bigger about some of these words like cloud. It's just not a misty day. So also, the tabernacle is shown. Well, let me quote this. Uh, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So often when you're in the Old Testament, look for these words and identify these words and be ready for them. And when you see them, let's determine if they're being used in this kind of a theological way. And if it is, when you see the presence of God and the cloud of God and the work of God, remember this, that these are manifestations of God's moving His purpose forward in the Old Testament. And that purpose is that I will have a people with whom I will dwell. It's one of the mandates that Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind in obedience were to fulfill. So the tabernacle was also shown to be God's dwelling place among His people in its central location among the tribes. The tabernacle, you remember, in the wilderness was set, and then there were three tribes in the front, three tribes in the back, three tribes on the right, and three tribes on the left. Now, we won't go into the details which tribe was which. I don't think we need to do that. So the tabernacle literally was in the middle of all the tribes of Israel. And when the tabernacle or when God moved, the entire formation moved that way. What does it say? That God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And this begins to be a, a revelation and a moving forward to the day when God will be in the midst of his people permanently and forever. And we are that people. Now let's talk about the place of sacrifice. Now we come to answer the most significant question raised by the tabernacle. 
there should be a question in our minds. How can a holy and just God dwell among a sinful people without compromising himself? You see, this is the linchpin. This is the pivot, the fulcrum upon which everything rotates as far as the accomplishment of God's purpose in mankind. How can a holy and righteous or just God, one who does not do wrong and will never clear the guilty of their guilt, because if he clears the guilty of their guilt apart from his holiness and righteousness, he himself has denied himself. You know no judge can dismiss a murderer just because the murderer says, look, I've only done it once in my life. Oh, well, that's it. You can go free. We'd all be up in arms and want to throw the judge out, correct? Because we know it's not just. How can a righteous, a holy, and just God dwell in the midst of a corrupt and sinful people without compromising himself? Well, mankind says today he can because God isn't that way. He isn't that holy. He isn't that just. He understands. He's flexible. He's just so much love. And his love overcomes all of that. And, you know, this is how God is. And so man thinks, well, it doesn't matter too much as long as we are doing what we think we need to do in order to please God and to serve God. And that's the opposite of what the Word of God tells us. So the tabernacle begins to answer, actually very specifically answers the question, how can God do this? <clears throat> how can God take a person such as we, people such as we? Think about yourself. Corrupt, sinful. Our proclivity is always in the flesh to do wrong. Amen? Have any of us arrived at the place where we do no more wrong in a literal sense? No. And so how can God, who is totally right in himself and pure and holy and truth, how can he dwell in us? The tabernacle answers that. So let's talk about the tabernacle this morning in a greater detail concerning this issue. God's ability to dwell among his people in the tabernacle and also in us is made possible only, only, only through the shedding of innocent blood. It's done only through the sacrificial system <clears throat> or the atonement. It's only done through the atonement, atoning for one's sin, sacrificing an innocent who represents and substitutes for the guilty. It's the only way it can happen. Atonement. Atonement. The shedding of blood for the guilty. Atonement. If you've not known what the word atonement was or meant, hopefully this morning I've done it in a couple of ways that you kind of begin to get the idea. The atonement. The Day of Atonement, you remember there were seven festivals and the Day of Atonement is a sixth one. It's almost at the end. The Day of Atonement occurs once a year. It occurs after Rosh Hashanah. Remember Rosh Hashanah, the Festival of Trumpets in September, October? You remember that? 
And then immediately after Rosh Hashanah is the Day of Atonement. And then you have booths after that. The Day of Atonement occurs once a year. And it, it answers the question, how can a holy and just God dwell among his people without compromising himself? And you see, this is the day, the Day of Atonement, <clears throat> where God's justice is satisfied in order that his mercy may be poured out. Now, please make sure we get the, the way it is. God's justice must first be satisfied, satiated, in order for any of his mercy to be poured out. If anyone experiences the genuine mercy of God, it is as a consequence of God's justice previously having been dealt with according to God's way. Justice dealt with first, so God ever remains righteous and justice, just. And once God remains righteous and, and just in the way he deals with our sin through the sacrificial system, through the atonement, once that happens and his righteousness is satisfied, then God pours out his love and mercy. He does not do it the other way around. Remember in Adam and Eve, he first clothed them and then he acted mercifully toward them. Remember, he clothed them and then he moved them out of the garden so they couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, I'm the tree of life, so they would live forever. He expelled them from the presence of being able to eat of the fruit that would make them live forever as sinners, needing a redeemer. So how was this Day of Atonement accomplished? What are the two most basic elements or issues in the Day of Atonement? Now, when we look at this today, we must be very clear to make sure that we understand and remember what God is telling us in this tabernacle sacrificial system. Because this is the very basis and activity of what happens at the cross. What we see today in the tabernacle is fulfilled fully, finally, and forever in the cross of Christ. So this is not just a kind of a thing doing out there and what they did now, but we're Christians. No, this is the reason we're here today. Because what God does and shows and accomplishes in the tabernacle through the atonement is accomplished through two means. First, the death of a substitute. And secondly, it's accomplished by the high priest who offers the sacrifice. So it's accomplished by a sacrificed animal, and it's accomplished by the high priest who offers the sacrificed animal. And some of you are already ahead of me understanding what Hebrew says about Jesus. Hebrews, we'll get into Hebrews, and I think and hope that once we go back and look at some of the verses in Hebrews, having seen what we're looking at today, all of a sudden some of these verses that look like, what in the world is he talking about here? All of a sudden is, wow, this is what this means. See, because Hebrews is an incredible revelation of all that God does in the Old Testament to bring about our redemption. So we'll get to that later. How does, what are the two means of the atonement being successful and pleasing to God in the tabernacle? 
a sacrifice must be given, offered. An animal must die. And the high priest, I didn't say any, the high priest must make the sacrifice. Those two elements, absolutely crucial. Without one, you do not have the other. You must have both. So make sure that both are equally significant to God and for the way he redeems his people. Where do you find all of this? Well, this information, this revelation, this way of God dealing with our sin so that he can dwell among his people justly and in mercy, this is found in Leviticus, is where the sacrificial system is explained in detail. So you might want to look at Leviticus and begin to look at that, and especially we'll see this morning in chapter 16. Now, why was the Day of Atonement so important? Why this day? What was happening on this day? On this day, once a year, once a year, the high priest would offer a substitute to die for the sin of the people so that God would put their sin away for another year. He would remove their sin from them for another year. And this foreshadowed the day when God's own sacrifice would die for the sin of his people. It follows and begins to fulfill the type that is in Genesis 3.21. In Genesis 3.21, what happened? An animal is sacrificed, and who makes the sacrifice? God himself does. So you see, what we see in the tabernacle is already typed or shown or exampled for us and set as the pattern is shown in the tabernacle in the temple, which we'll get to next week, and is fulfilled where? At the cross. So again, let's not look at Genesis as just an old story and kind of this and that, but let's see this entire Old Testament <clears throat> as a great thread, as a great tapestry leading us forward to the conclusion and to the culmination. So what do we have in the tabernacle? We have a sacrificed animal. We saw that in Genesis 3.21. What do we have in the tabernacle? We have a high priest who offers the sacrifice, who slays the animal. What do we have in Genesis 3.21? We have God slaying an animal. And when that occurs, man's sin is covered over. His guilt is dealt with in order for God and man to continue to fellowship together. That's what we're seeing in the tabernacle as we move forward. This is what we saw pictured in Exodus 12, 13. You remember that? The night that Israel was to take the blood? Remember that? And they were sacrificed an animal, each household in Egypt. And they were to sacrifice an animal and take the blood and pour it into the basin. What is the basin? At the threshing floor of the entrance of the door was a little hollowed out area, the threshold. It was a little hollowed out area, and the blood was poured into that. And then they would take hyssop, these long looking, what do you, what, 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 how would I call those? Little weed looking things, I suppose. And they would dip the hyssop in that blood and put it on the right and the left lentils and the doorpost so that the entire entrance, floor, doorpost, and top would be covered in blood. The entire entrance was covered in blood. And here's what the Lord said. 
when I see the blood, remember the day of Passover, remember the angel of death coming in? You saw the movie, I'm sure. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Why? Because it was God's, God moving in judgment against sin to deliver his people. Again, <clears throat> the same type. You see the type is being maintained. The animal is slain. It is offered to God by each family in that particular context before the priesthood is established. Each head of the family is the priest of his family, and he slays the animal, and they cover it, the doorpost, and God passes over. The same type as we see in Genesis 3.21. Now we begin to see much more elaborated upon and explained and in detail in the tabernacle. Therefore, in Leviticus 17, 11, here's what we read, and you've heard this because it's also in Hebrews 9, 22, quotes this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, remember, grace. I have given it, grace. Old Testament is filled with grace. Don't believe teachers who tell you that there is no grace in the Old Testament. It is grace from beginning to end. Once Genesis 3, 6 hits and he ate of the tree, remember, and he ate, it is grace 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 forever amen so don't let teachers tell you it's law and it's by works it's always by grace always by grace i have given the blood he said for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life remember without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins <clears throat> And this is what happened on the Day of Atonement. It's specified in Leviticus 16. Let me read this to you. I'm going to read Leviticus 16, 6 to 22. You might want to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to try to do this within the time frame allotted to me. Hmm. Leviticus 16, 6 to 22. Extremely important. This is the heartbeat. This is the heartbeat of God and the way he accomplishes his purpose in our lives. Look, I know everybody knows John 3, 16. Everybody knows, you know, certain passages. It's great. But get to know this passage because all those passages of the New Testament, which we love, or the consequence of, the re of reality in us because of this passage in Leviticus 16, 6 to 22. So you see the basis here. And here we go. Aaron, remember, that's Moses' brother, and he's part of the Levitical priesthood. It will be Aaron and his descendants who will be the high priest. Just as a quick disclaimer there. <clears throat> Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering for himself. Watch that. He has to first have his own sins dealt with and shall make atonement for himself and for his house, for his people. Then he shall take two goats. How many? Two goats. How many? Two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the temple, a tent of meeting. How many? Two goats. How many? Two goats. And Aaron shall cast <clears throat> lots over the two goats. How many? Two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, or means a scapegoat. You may have heard of the word scapegoat. It means scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. 
verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that's the first goat, that is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Seven times he dipped his finger into the blood, and seven times he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. Again, we didn't go into all those details because I thought it would just really kind of be beyond where we're going in this particular study. Maybe one day we can do a study of the tabernacle in detail. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember? Two goats, verse 21. Two goats. The first goat is slain. The second goat is still alive. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the sin of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. Do you see what's happening here? What is going on? <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could represent, who represented the people, could represent the people before God to make the sacrifice of their sin. Only the high priest could do this. He carried in himself, in the view, in the mind, and the purpose of God, all the people. The priest came before God representing in himself all the people. Now, how many of you were raised Catholic? How many of you remember that the priest in Catholicism would, representing the entire congregation, would make the sacrifice of the Mass, right? First he would do it for himself, and then he would do it for his people. That's what Catholicism has as the heart of its religious system. It's already been completed, but it's still being practiced. But the idea of the priest representing the people, I think those of you who are Catholic at least get that idea better than those who are raised Protestant. Huh? What do you mean the priest of the people and all that kind of thing? So the high priest represents all the people. Why am I emphasizing this? Because there's coming a day in the next week or two when we will talk about God's high priest who takes all of God's people before the throne of God into the mercy seat, rather, uh, of God and his own death representing all of God's people. So first he had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. Remember the high priest had to do that. Then he could make a sacrifice for the sin of the people. Why? Because not even the high priest in that economy, in that religious system, in that sacrificial system could come before the presence of God being sinful or at least having his sin still not dealt with through death. And so even the high priest had to make a bull offering for himself, go in, make atonement for himself, come back out, and then sacrifice the goat and take the blood of that goat back into the Holy of Holies. If the priest did that without making a sacrifice for himself, he would have died. And so what does that show? <clears throat> that the high priest that God is adumbrating, looking forward to, prefiguring, typing, the high priest that is being adumbrated here is one who will be one with the people, 
but will be in himself without the necessity of personal atonement. He will be one who in himself has no sin, so he can enter the presence of God. You see, because all of these are types and are shadows, but it cannot happen in fullness unless a man who has never sinned takes the sin and is sacrificed for that sin. Do you see what's going on here? This is incredible. Nobody has this system. Nobody in paganism <clears throat> has this. Why? Why is it so unique? Because it's God. Amen? amen. Yes. Let's say amen. 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 This is God. Where am I? Oh, the two goats were chosen. Leviticus 16:9. Remember the two goats. How many goats? Two goats. How many goats? Two goats. So when someone asks you one day, how many goats? What will you say? Two goats. Goat, lamb, goat, lamb, you know, goat, lamb. How many? Two. <clears throat> they represented the guilty. Extremely important word. They, if you don't have it in your notes, put it down. Does he have it in the notes? They represented the guilty. And they were sacrificed as the substitutes or in the place of the guilty. They represented the guilty. In other words, when God saw this animal die or when God saw this animal pushed out into the wilderness, God saw all the sin of his people represented in this animal. And when that animal died, God saw that animal dying in our place as our substitute. Representation, substitution. Those are two very vital understandings and words that we'll get to later when it comes to Christ because Adam was our representative and he sinned and we all sin in him. But Christ now being our representative now, let's not get into that today. So, hopefully that's a little fishing way, you know, throwing some shrimp out there for you two, y'all to come on back. Do you see that? The goats did what? They represented us. They represented you, Joe. They represented you. And they substituted for you, Steve. They died in your place. And as a result of that, God's people's sin were put away. You notice I didn't say forgiven. Did you notice I haven't said forgiven? I said what? Put away. They were never forgiven until the cross. They were never forgiven until the cross. But they were put away. They were removed. East and west. Remember that? You see, this is the gospel, isn't it, in the Old Testament? Can you see the gospel in the Old Testament? Let's notice that the two goats foreshadowed the double effect of the atonement. There's a double effect of the atonement. Two goats, each one representing a specific effect of the gospel. Two goats, each one representing a specific effect of the gospel. And here it is. First, <clears throat> propitiation. Now, you have to be careful when you say that. You'll spit on somebody. <laughs> propitiation. Can you say it? Propitiation. It's like she in the middle of it. Not propitiation, but propitiation. It's like put a she in the middle of it. Propitiation. That word, if you will look it up in a good Bible, you'll see used four times in the New Testament propitiation 
twice in 1 John, once in Hebrews, and once in Romans. What does propitiation mean? Well, maybe all of you know that. If you don't, learn it today. It has to do with the satisfaction of God's justice, His wrath against sin by the shedding of blood. God has been dishonored in our sin. That's the problem with sin. The problem with our sin has not to do with us primarily. It has to do with the offense to a holy and just God. This is the problem of sin. It is an offense, an attack, a repudiation of a holy, sovereign, just God. This is the problem with sin. The result of sin is death and wrath forever called hell. This is a terrible consequence of sin. It is the wrath of God abides on sinners forever. Forever. This is the problem with sin for us. The problem with sin for God, it is a repudiation of His holiness, of His right to rule, of His uh, sovereignty, of His goodness, of His righteousness, of His mercy. It's, it's an affront to God. And what's the effect upon us? The eternal wrath of God abides on every single sinner. That's a problem. So propitiation must, the, the sacrificial system must deal with these two issues. Correct? And so how does God's justice satisfy? It is typed here in an animal, foreshadowed, and it will be satisfied later. But propitiation must occur. God's wrath, His just fury and punishment for our sin must be dealt with, must be poured out upon the first animal as pictured in its death. The wrath of God pictured in this death is being poured out through the dying or the slaying of this animal. The spilling of this animal's blood is the evidence that the wrath of God is being poured out so that God's wrath, His justice, has been satisfied. That's propitiation. Do we understand that? Are you clear on that today? The satisfaction of the wrath of God. God's justice is maintained. Why? Because God has poured out. Now, don't tell me animals. Well, of course not. But we'll talk about that later. In fact, we'll go back into Hebrews and we'll see the relationship. But all we know today is this. As a Jew living in those days, all we knew is this. And when that high priest kills that animal and goes in there, God in some way removes my sin from me. Removes, and I maintain in fellowship with God. So God's wrath is poured out as signified in the death of the animal, the shedding of the blood. Remember, the life is in the blood, 1711 of Leviticus. And so the life is required. The high priest, and then he shall kill the goat for the sin offering, verse 15, that is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull. That's the one he did for himself. Sprinkle it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. And by the way, it was seven different times. Remember the word seven high priest would enter the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God himself where the Ark of the Covenant was located. That's that rectangular box. And sprinkle the blood of the innocent animal seven times onto the lid, which is called the Kaporth, or it is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where God's feet 
touch or his footstool touch the earth. It is his presence. And the mercy and the blood is poured out upon the mercy seat. The seed of God's presence and judgment that becomes the seed of God's mercy through the shedding of the blood. The second word is like, sounds like the first word. The first word was what? Propitiation. The second word is expiation. Expiation. The word expiation means the removal of the guilt of sin. It is a removal of it. Now that God's, get it, get it, get it, get it, church, get it. The wrath of God must be poured out justly upon the victim, the right victim, so that God's justice is maintained. Once God's justice is maintained, then the guilt, the pollution, the penalty being paid, the guilt and the pollution and the control and the domination and the authority of sin's activity and presence in us can be what? Removed. So that's what we see in the second animal. Remember the scapegoat. The priest did what? Laid his hands. Having sacrifice coming out of the uh, Holy of Holies, God has accepted it. How do you know that? Because he lived and he came out. Therefore, God has accepted it. And he lays his hands upon this goat, confessing all the sin of the people, and then the goat is driven into the wilderness, and the goat dies in the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat, the goat upon which all the sin is placed and going out there. And that's expiation. <clears throat> Only after God's justice is satisfied can and will his mercy be applied to forgiveness of our sin. That's what's being shown here. Therefore, in the sacrificing of the two goats for the sin of the people, God was promising that his Redeemer in himself, in this one Redeemer, would be sacrificed so that God and man might dwell in joy and fellowship forever in God's place. See, everything about the tabernacle was forward-looking. It's eschatological, the last days, last day stuff, eschatological. is forward-looking. Everything is forward-looking, all anticipating the day that Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin against them no more. That's what's being said here. So look in the back of your notes. Look at the back, the cross. Toward God, propitiation. And once that sacrifice is made toward God and God's wrath is satisfied, then what? Expiation, the sins are removed. And as a result of that, we can now enjoy fellowship with God in His presence forever. Amen? Next week we'll get into David, Solomon, and the temple to, again, expand upon especially the mandate of Genesis 128 and have dominion because the dominion and kingship of God is represented here, but it will be developed to a really nice extent with the temple, Jerusalem, city temple, you know, and all that. So see you next week. Thank you.